Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, I uh, just was moved by those songs that we sang here. And every one of them has much to do with what we're going to hear from your word today. Uh, Much of this uh, isn't brand new, but it is inspiring for those within whom your spirit contends and flourishes. So I pray that you'd speak, and I pray that we'd hear, and I pray that we would uh, respond to the moving of your spirit according to the truth of your word, and that we would bear your fruit um, inside and outside according to your will in this world. Uh, You know that we desperately need to live out loud and this world desperately needs us to do so so move mightily today in Jesus name amen today we begin our second message in our series entitled a passion to communicate it's a series actually on teaching say teaching teaching. Uh, Last week I made sort of a big deal about every one of you who know Christ in a saving personal way being a teacher or being called to teach. Um, Everyone's called to teach. And I'm a little bit surprised I didn't get some pushback on that. So I'm going to provide my own pushback today. (laughs) James 3.1 says this, not many of you should presume to be teachers. My brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Uh, So, thought of that, and maybe what I taught last week was a little bit out of line, maybe not heretical, but the next thing to it, I don't know, what do you think? Well, let me do this. Let's turn to 2 Kings 5 and allow me to explain what I meant by this called to teach thing. We're going to jump right into the middle of this story, 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 9, a guy by the name of Naaman who had a disease, leprosy. But we're jumping into the middle of the story. So Naaman, this is verse 9, Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha, who was a prophet, sent a messenger. He didn't even go out to him. He sends out a messenger to this guy. And the messenger says, hey, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Arbana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off. How'd he go off? In a rage. You know, sometimes we have expectations of other people. They're supposed to do this. They're supposed to be this way. Kind of ticks us off when they're not that way. Well, that's certainly what he was expecting. And Naaman's servants, thank the Lord for them, went to him and said, Dude, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? 
How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So they talked him into it, and he went down. He dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, read this with me, will you? Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Wow, that's awesome. This pagan guy gets it. God is God alone. Now, who in this story, this is what I want to ask you, the reason I read this is, who in this story plays the greatest role, you think, besides God himself? Now, many of you probably say Elisha. Certainly, he's a top candidate. I mean, God always did amazing things through this prophet, and this certainly is one of those amazing things, the healing of Naaman the leper. But I think there is one that we haven't even heard of yet that played a hugely significant role. Let's back up. I want you to back up in the story to the beginning of the chapter, 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. And here's what we read. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. And he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And one day she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master, the king of Aram, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. And the king says, by all means, go. Now, I want you to think a little bit about this servant girl. She is a captive slave. She is separated from her family. They may have even been killed in the raid. Who knows? It doesn't say. But she is in a foreign land, and the trauma of her life must have been very great indeed. And yet, when we look into her soul for a second, she is conducting herself in such a way that the, com get this now, the commander and his wife listen to her. Is that not amazing? In spite of this girl's circumstances, she exhibits a faith in God that is very positive and very unwavering. Not only that, but she cares. She gives two hoots about her captives. She's concerned about Naaman, her master, who has leprosy. And because of her attitude, because of her toughness, because of her faith, when she talks, they listen. And she said to her mistress, I'll read it again, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And they listened to their slave girl. This nobody is somebody to them. So Naaman's mistress tells Naaman, his wife tells Naaman what this slave girl says, and Naaman thinks so much about this girl that he takes it to the king. Her words go to the king of Aram. 
Now, this girl probably didn't have a degree. She had no apparent oratory skills that we know of. We don't know how intelligent she was. We don't even know how old she was. It says she was just a young girl. But we do know that she believed in the God of Elisha. And she testified of him to a people who did not believe. And she was in horrible circumstances, apparently. But she influenced. Amen? She taught. Amen? Not formally. She didn't have a textbook, no lecture. Just a bold faith that served in such a way that she earned the respect and the listening ear of those she served. That's what I mean by teaching. Shoot, maybe teaching isn't even the right word for it. Now, for some of you, a passion to communicate, our series title, might be formal teaching. Very well could be. Great. But for others of you... This servant girl is a perfect example of what I'm trying to communicate to you when I say you are all in Christ called to teach. And just what was the lesson learned in this? Well, verse 15, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time bows his knee and says, Naaman and all his attendants went back to that man of God, Elisha, and he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And that was all instigated and begun in his heart and his life by a little girl who had a passion to communicate under horrible circumstances. And in this I say, again, each of you that know Christ are called called to teach. I want to share with you a little story here. It goes like this. <clears throat> there was a wealthy man and his son, and they loved to collect rare works of art. They had everything in their collection. He was a man of means, so he had Picasso, he had Raphael, and they would often sit together and admire the great works of art that the father had collected. But then the Vietnam War conflict broke out and the son went to war and he was very courageous. And he died in battle while rescuing another soldier. The father was notified and he grieved deeply for his only son. About a month later, there was a knock at the door and a young man stood at the door of this elderly gentleman with a large package in his hands. And he said, sir, you don't know me but I am the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He saved many lives that day, and he was carrying me to safety when a bullet struck him in the heart, and he died instantly. He often talked about you and your love for art. At this, the young man held out this package that he had in his hand. He said, I know this isn't much. I'm not really a great artist, but I think your son would have wanted you to have this. And the father opened the package. It was a portrait of his son painted by the young man. The old man stared in awe at the way the soldier had captured the personality of his son in the painting. The father was so drawn to the eyes 
that his own eyes welled up with tears. He thanked the young man and offered to pay him for the picture. And he said, oh no, sir, I could never repay what your son did for me. It's a gift. The father hung that portrait over his mantle, and every time visitors came to his home, he took them first to see the portrait of his son before he showed them any of the other great works that he had collected. That old man died a few months later, and there was to be a great auction of all his paintings. Many influential and wealthy people gathered. They were excited over seeing the great paintings and having an opportunity to purchase one for their own collection. When they gathered that day of the auction on the platform sat the painting of the sun and the auctioneer pounded his gavel and said, we will start the bidding with this picture of the sun. Who will bid for this picture? And there was a long silence. After a while, a voice in the back of the room shouted, we want to see the famous paintings. Let's skip this one. But the auctioneer persisted. Will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? $100, $200. Another voice rang out impatiently. We didn't come to see this painting. We came to see the Van Goghs, the Rembrandts. Get on with the real bids. But still the auctioneer continued. The sun, the sun. Who will take the sun? Finally, a voice came from the very back of the room. It was the longtime gardener of the man and his son. I'll give $10 for the painting. Being a poor man, it was all he could afford. We have $10. Who will bid 20 Give it to him for $10. Let's, let's see the masters, someone shouted. $10 is the bid. Won't someone bid 20 the crowd was becoming frustrated. They didn't want the picture of the sun. They wanted the more worthy investments for their collections. The auctioneer pounded the gavel, going once, twice, sold for $10. A man sitting in the second row shouted, now let's get on with the collection. The auctioneer laid down his gavel. I'm sorry, the auction is over. Well, what about the paintings? I am sorry. When I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until this time. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. Whoever bought that painting would inherit the entire estate, including all the other paintings. The man who took the sun gets everything. God gave his son 2,000 years ago to die for you. Uh, much like the auctioneer, God's message today is this, the son, the son who will take the son. Because you see, whoever takes the son gets everything. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life whoever takes the sun gets everything if we could just teach that in our passion to communicate can you teach that
Most importantly, do you believe that? Do you really believe that what you say you believe is really real? There's a question from the past, isn't it? Do you believe that? It's the gospel, you know. The Son, Jesus, is God's way to right relationship with God. There is no other way. That is not a popular message in our day. Let me say it again louder. No other way to have an eternal relationship with God than through His Son. And the reason there is no other way is because there is no other life than Jesus' life that can substitute for your own. You realize this, don't you? God's not being narrow-minded in this. There is no other life than Jesus that can substitute for your own. Jesus' righteous life that he lived as a human being for your unrighteous, imperfect one means this. We make a big deal a lot that Jesus died for you. Yes, he did. But did you ever think that Jesus lived for you? He lived for you. And he's the only one that could. And then, yes, Jesus' death for your sin. He died for you. He's the only one who could. If I died for you, it might affect your physical life, but it would have no bearing on your eternal destiny, none whatsoever. But Jesus' life can. He's the only one whose death for you affects your eternity. He lived for you. He died for you. And then, of course, Jesus' resurrection from your grave. He arose for you. He defeated the death your sin demanded. He is the only one who could. There is no other leader, religiously or politically, who could satisfy the requirements of God's holiness, redemption, salvation. Jesus defeated death. He's the only one who could. And he did that, first off, for the glory of the Father, and second, for the love of you. Every other religious and political figure in the history of mankind died. And you can visit their graves where their bodies are buried. They succumbed to the wages of sin. But Jesus' tomb is empty. That is why I'm a Christian. Because he is utterly unique. He is unique in his message, in his method, in his ministry, in his meaning. And he is the Jewish Messiah. He is the blessing of Abraham through whom the whole world would be blessed, Genesis 12 and 15. He is David's offspring, the king in the line of David who would rule and reign forever, 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is God's way made for you to come to life in God. He is the only one who could. And if you reject him, if you reject his way, then you will die in your sin. Can you teach that? There is, there is really only one way you can and you will desire to teach that. Because like I said, that's not a popular message. Some places that will get you hurt. <laughs> There's only one way you can and will desire 
to teach that, and that is if you have experienced that. If you have experienced that. In other words, and here it is. This is where we've been going. You ready? I finally got to my point. Good speakers get to their point a lot faster than I just did, but here it is. You must be full in order for others to draw from your supply. You must be full in order for other people to draw from your supply. In this series, A Passion to Communicate, we're going to be going through principles, laws, if you will, of, of teaching and learning. And the first one, this is the first of the seven, is I call it the law of the teacher. The law of the teacher. This is from, from Howard Hendricks' book. And he said, the effective teacher always teaches from the overflow of what? A full life. That's why this message is called fullness. And it was pretty cool because we just sang a song about that, didn't we? Overflow. Overflow. Till it's all I know. The effective teacher always teaches from the overflow of a full life. If your life is not full, then you will have no resource to pour out. If your life is not full, then you are approaching empty. You can't teach what you don't know, right? You can't teach what you haven't experienced. When I graduated from high school, I thought someday I might coach basketball. And and at least I wanted to keep that option open. So my thought was this. Even though I was a very average player in my physical abilities, I thought that I should go to a college where I might have the opportunity, if I worked really hard, to play more basketball. I reasoned, I can't coach if I don't experience more of the game. And so I went to a place that I thought needed a point guard, and I worked really hard, and I played, and I learned more about the game. And later, I coached the game... And I'll tell you something, I won way more games coaching than I ever did playing. (laughs) And the reason I I made those decisions, they were a little bit misguided in their priority system at that time, the foolishness of youth, but the effective teacher always teaches from the overflow of a full life. Now the question then is, what does that mean? What's a, a full life in Christ that the born twice believer has access to? Full of what? Full of what? And the answer, many of you know, is full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. John the Baptist, Matthew 3.11, he says, Look, dudes, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus, John 14, said this to his followers, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another counselor, that'll be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Paul, Colossians 1, says, I've become its servant of the gospel by the commission God gave me to present to you what? To present to you what? Don't I have this on the screen? Colossians 1.25. The word of God in what? In its fullness. 
The mystery has been kept hidden, but it's now disclosed. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this, of this mystery, which is Christ in you. That's the Holy Spirit, the hope of glory. And then there's Paul in Ephesians 5. Love in this, therefore don't be stupid, he says, but understand what the Lord's will is. And it's not that you get drunk on wine, which is what the Ephesians used to think before they came to Christ. They'd worship there at the temple of, of Artemis or Ephrodite. I can't remember which god it was, but part of their worship was to go get drunk. They, they thought that made, made you spiritually heightened. And Paul says, nope, that's not the way to draw near to God. That leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. There's your PTCC that we talk about a lot, present time Christ consciousness. Uh, let me give you a better flavor of the tense of that in the Greek. Instead, be filled with the Spirit whenever, what? It is now. When is it now? Right now. Okay, you're sitting there right now, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Can you give God your attention right now as you sit here listening to this message? Can you realize that God is, his eyes are upon you? That you, if you know Christ, you are forgiven. There's nothing standing between you and God. And his spirit wants to do life with you. He wants to empower you, wants to change you, transform you. So that you heal from the wounds of your past, your relational dysfunctions, and become more and more like Jesus Christ. Be filled with the Spirit whenever it's now. The effective teacher always teaches from the overflow of a full life. What is the full life in Christ? Full of what? The Holy Spirit, the presence of God. If you and I are not living out of Christ in you, listen to me now, then your religious influence is just going to sound like a bunch of do thises and don't do thats. That's what the world thinks of us and oftentimes hears of us a bunch of rules for being a good person. That is not what we are. That is not Christianity. I said this a few weeks ago, and it bears repeating, that Jesus did not come to die to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That is the gospel. That is what we need. We need to come alive. You're, the goodness and the badness things, uh, that's below the line. <laughs> Above the line is you need life in Christ. Okay, from there. What else? The full life from which the born twice believer has the grace and gumption to teach, to influence, is the Holy Spirit and His power. But what else? There is fullness, then there's this. And we're just keeping this really simple. The second thing, other than fullness, is growth. Growth. 2 Peter 3.18, Peter closes his second circular letter to the churches of Asia Minor, commanding them. Would you read this with me so I know you're still awake? Would you? Okay, here we go. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, if you stop growing, 
you stop teaching. If you stop growing, you stop teaching because you as a teacher are primarily and always a learner. Amen? You're a student among students. You're a disciple maker who is a disciple. A disciple is a follower, a learner of Jesus. Howard Hendricks said it this way. He says, such a philosophy requires a certain attitude, the attitude that you have not yet arrived. A person who applies this principle of teaching is always asking, how can I improve? As long as you live, you learn. And as long as you learn, you live. Folks, you got to grow. If you stop learning, you stop teaching. If you stop teaching, you stop living in a way. And you're just taking up oxygen. If you stop learning, you stop teaching. If you stop teaching, you stop living because the Holy Spirit is kind of just quenched and stuffed off in the corner of your soul someplace. Not allowing the life of Jesus Christ to express itself. I wonder, we don't have time, it's getting past time and i got to wrap this up, but I wonder if we took time right now, if we did this, to write down the answer to this question. Pretend you had a piece of paper, maybe you could do this later, and a pen or a pencil, and you were presented with this question, how have you changed lately? How have you changed lately, in the last week, or the last month, or the last year? Now, you might say, well, yeah, I'm growing. Okay, how? <laughs> you say, uh, oh, in all kinds of ways. Great. Let's name one. Name one. You see, effective teaching, effective influence comes only through a changed and a changing person. One who's becoming more and more like Christ. The more you change and grow, the more you become an agent of change and growth in the lives of other people. If you desire to be a change agent, an agent of transformation, you also must change. And listen, this has nothing to do, what I'm talking about right now has nothing to do with age. It has more to do with attitude. Uh, Hendricks writes thus, Older people can be excellent learners, but frequently they are conditioned against learning. Somewhere along the line, they're infected with the idea that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Which is true. If you're teaching dogs, and if you're teaching tricks. <laughs> but you and I are not in the business of either one. Uh, we're teaching people, and we're teaching truth. Amen? Howard Hendricks, he had a kind of way with words. Listen, near unto the end of the Apostle Paul's life, at a time when most people were looking for rocking chairs, this is what he wrote. Paul wrote, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 3. We could have a great discussion on what he was pressing toward. would love to have that discussion with you. It's, he puts it right out there in all of Philippians 3. He says, I'm pressing on toward the goal. 
You know, some of the most exciting and fulfilled people you'll ever meet are older, spirit-filled believers who have decided not to stop growing and learning. How many of you know that Jesus grew? Did you know that? Think about it. Jesus grew. He sure did. In, in Luke 2.52, we see Jesus grew intellectually in wisdom. He also grew physically in stature. He grew spiritually in favor with God, and he grew socially and emotionally in favor with man. And if even Jesus grew, why shouldn't we? If he is our Savior, then let's keep submitting to his saving us <laughs> in every way. I still need a lot of saving. You? And if he is our example, then let's keep growing. All right, we're, we're past time, uh, so we're going to wrap up. Let's, uh, let's call this first lesson in a passion to communicate. We'll call it the law of the teacher, fullness. The law of the teacher is this. The effective teacher always teaches from the overflow of a full life. A full life, what's that mean? It means full of the Holy Spirit and growth. Godspeed. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity. Um, we've prayed that before, said that before, but we never imagined that on this side of, well, we're still in the midst of it really, but of this uh, crisis, I guess there's just new appreciation of that. We thank you for the opportunity gather together in places like Nepal and a thousand other places across the globe uh, they don't have that freedom and it's not because of a virus father this should make us stronger that we have the freedom to do this I fear sometimes it makes us weaker because we take it for granted. Father, I pray for fullness. Not a pride in ourselves or our abilities, but a fullness with you, a fullness of your presence, a hunger for your word, because without your word, uh, we just kind of run around. We can be full of spiritual energy, but it takes us to some pretty dangerous places. We need the fullness of your spirit that gives us a hunger for the truth of your word and that helps us to understand it and live by it and obey it, dynamically obey it, so that we can be an agent an ambassador of Jesus Christ in our community. Father, you know, I want that for myself and for our church. You know, the disappointments, frustrations, some of the times the reasons we 
we said something, we tried something, and then we come back saying, I'll never do that again. We talked about that last week. The hurts, the pains, the feelings of inadequacy, insecurity, and all that human stuff um, that we all experience and know. We just give that to you right now. And I pray for a renewed boldness and courage by your Spirit's power. I just think of Acts chapter 4, I think it is, where, where the leaders, the powerful, said, don't you dare preach in his name again. And your church, just a few hundred, I think, at that time, got together and they prayed and said, Lord, you heard those threats, we give them to you. We just give you the threats, and we ask that you would enable your servants to speak your word boldly. So they gave you the threats and asked for your spirit of boldness and fullness. And you, you answered, and you shook that place. And then you went from there to shake the world. You're still shaking it. And the world is tottering, and it's in some ways collapsing, though it's not from you. It's from the weight of its own false ideas and notions. And I pray that your church would be up to the task of, of telling the truth, loving the truth, loving God, loving your word, and loving people. Uh, help us to be that and do that. Help us to grow and help us to be full of, of your spirit even this day. In Jesus' name, amen.